0: I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word this morning. Join me once again in the book of Galatians. We will pick up where we left off this past Sunday. We're going to cover Galatians chapter 2, the entire chapter this morning. And so I want to encourage you to listen fast and I'll do the best I can to talk fast. As we walk through the text this morning... I was reading in a, a gospel's plan uh, that I'm working through right now in my personal time with the Lord and I was reading this morning and it was talking about Jesus and his brothers and sisters and, and I thought about it in relation to the text this morning because what we're going to look at is the reason that we as followers of Jesus can have hope that Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, his death on the cross, his resurrection, which makes it possible for our sins to be forgiven and for us to rest in that relationship with him. It hit me this morning. I wonder what it was like to be one of Jesus's brothers and sisters. Anybody ever thought that? It hit me this morning, I, I don't know if you have brothers or sisters or not, if you have siblings, but I always like to joke, I have a younger brother that's 14 years younger than me, and he could do no wrong. But think about if Jesus was your brother. And not only that, he was the firstborn for Mary and Joseph, right? Right? Some of you, I've heard the conversations that, uh, that you've said, it's like if the third kid had come along first, you'd have been done, right? Wouldn't have kept going. But can you imagine if Jesus was your first child? Perfectly sinless and righteous. Can you imagine being a brother or sister of Jesus? Now, he cried. I mean, he did the things that normal kids do, but, but he was without sin. Can you imagine his parents saying, hey, James, why can't you just be more like your brother? Imagine the reports they came home from school for all the rest of their kids. Talks too much. Loud outbursts. Doesn't pay attention well. Jesus, like an angel. <laughs> you know, it's funny to think about, but yet, if we're honest for us as believers, our hope rests in Christ's perfect righteousness. In fact, that is our hope in this life, that Christ Jesus was perfectly righteous. He was the only one who could take our sin upon himself on the cross and pay the debt that we owed. As we look at the text this morning, We've been walking our way through the book of Galatians, a couple of sermons leading up to this one, and we've seen that Paul has a specific aim as he's writing this letter, and it's to challenge the believers in Galatia who have had some enter in and try to tell them that salvation is not just faith in Jesus Christ, but there must be more added to your salvation. There must be more added to it for it to be authentic, for it to be real. And he's not talking here about the fact that our lives should be transformed because of what Christ has done. No, what he's arguing against in the book of Galatians is that you need faith in Jesus plus something else to be saved. And Paul has hinted at this already and said that is so far from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a false gospel. We're going to see in the first few verses, verses 1 through 14 this morning, that Paul is going to give us a little bit of narrative of his ministry and his interaction as he sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles as they're coming by faith, trusting in Jesus for salvation, and some conversations that took place. And then we're going to focus our time this morning on verses 15 through 21. And I want to read for us chapter 2 of the book of Galatians. This is what Paul writes. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, for no purpose. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes, that we would be able to see. You would open our ears, that we would be able to hear. And that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would be ready to respond to your word and to your spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. As we look at the text this morning, I want you to write down this main idea that will frame our time together. And it's this beautiful truth, as believers, we are justified, which means declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We are declared righteous. We are justified, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf this is the argument that Paul is making in the book of Galatians it's the argument that he's making because some as I said earlier have come in and they've tried to rile up the believers who were in Galatia and say to them it's not enough just to be saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone you need that plus following the law You need that plus circumcision, as you heard him say here, and that was the issue that was taking place. Now what Paul does in the first part of chapter 2 is he gives us a bit of narrative, a bit of explanation for the believers here, for us as well. So that we understand that this conversation that he's having here with these believers in Galatia, this writing that he has provided to them, is not on the basis of something Paul just decided to manufacture on his own. In fact, this was an ongoing conversation early on in the life of the church. So if you take note of this, what you have is you have Gentiles, those who were not originally part of the people of God. And then you have the Jews who were originally part of the people of God. If you go back to the old Testament, you see that play out with Abraham as God calls Abraham, sets him apart and says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation and through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So God had picked his people, he had chosen to bless them, but it was so that they would be a blessing to the nations around them, so that the nations around them would see that they worship the one true God, and by default would look and say, we want to also worship that one true God. And so you see this playing out throughout the Old Testament, God's chosen people and the nations around them and the interaction that takes place, and now... After Jesus Christ has come to this earth, after he has laid his life down, after he has paid the debt of sin, after he has been raised from the dead, after he's ascended to the Father, you see what takes place in the book of Acts early on. It is primarily the Jews who are responding by faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2. They're the ones who are recognizing Jesus really is the true Messiah that we've been looking for, that we've been longing for. We are trusting him as our savior. And there was a question early on, is the message of the gospel just for the Jews or is it for everyone? And what we see Paul writing about here is what takes place in Acts chapter 15 as the gospel has spread throughout the known world at that point in time. As both Jews and Gentiles had come to faith in Jesus Christ, the church meets together in Jerusalem and has a bit of a conversation. And they hear the reports of Paul and his ministry among the Gentiles of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ who were not Jews, and they look and recognize that the gospel message is for everyone. And the question comes in, do we need to make them follow the customs of the Jews that were set forth in the Old Testament, or is it okay for them to come by faith in Christ and be part of the family of God? That was the question that they were wrestling through in Acts chapter 15, and that's what Paul is hinting at in The first 10 verses here in chapter 2, you may want to write Acts chapter 15. You can, in your own time with the Lord, walk back through that and see what's taking place here that he describes. But what he says is that as they brought them together in Jerusalem and had this conversation that they left from this meeting saying, yes, we are blessing what God is doing. We recognize that the gospel message is for anyone who would receive it by faith. So they send Paul out and say, man, keep doing what you're doing. I love what's going on in verse 11, though, because Paul is writing here and he says there arose a problem, though, on the back end of this. And I love it because he calls out Peter. Cephas is the name that's used there. It's Peter's other name. And he calls him out and he says that Peter had a problem. Peter was a bit of a hypocrite because when he was around the Gentiles, he would interact with them. He would eat the things that they were eating, which in the Old Testament were not prescribed for Jews to be able to eat. But then when some Jewish believers would come along, he would back away from that. He would step away from the Gentiles and act as if he couldn't interact with them anymore. And I love what Paul says here. He's like, I confronted him to his face. Little early church argument, right? says, I confronted him to his face, and I told him that he stood condemned because he was reverting back to salvation by the law. And he says, "That's not the true gospel. So he confronted Peter in that. And now a beginning in verse 15, and this is where I want us to spend the rest of our time together this morning. I want you to notice in verses 15 through 16, the truth that we are justified, we are declared righteous on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul writes, beginning in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth. Paul says, I by birth was a Jew, we're not Gentile sinners. And he's not saying that as a derogatory thing about those who are not Jews. He's simply making the distinction that if we were looking at this from an Old Testament perspective, that there was a great distinction that was made between Jews and Gentiles. And he says here, writing this, we are Jews by birth and not Gentiles. But look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So how is one made righteous? How is one declared justified in God's eyes? We know that Genesis chapter 3 reminds us that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience and sin spread to every single person as a result of that, that every single one of us are born sinners and we sin. You don't believe me? Sign up to work in the toddler's room. It doesn't take long back there to recognize that kids have a desire to get what they want. But for every single one of us, we are born in sin and we sin. Sin separates us from God. In fact, Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. What we deserve because of our sin is death and separation from God for all eternity. So how can we be forgiven of our sins? Well, it's only on the basis of what Christ has done for us. And that's what Paul says here. It's not on the basis of our works, but it's on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. He says, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. How can you be forgiven of your sins? Paul says here, it's not by following the law. You cannot do enough good things so that God would look at you and say, your sin's not that big of a deal. You're really a good person. I'm going to walk in relationship with you, and then when you die, you're going to spend eternity with me. That's not the case. Paul here says there's no way that any of us in our sin can do enough good things to earn God's favor. So then how do we enter into a relationship with God? He says here, it's only on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. So why is it such a big deal that Jesus Christ was perfectly sinless, righteous? Because he was the only one qualified to take our sin upon himself and pay for that debt that we owed as a result of our sin. So Paul says here, the only way we can be forgiven of our sins be brought into the family of God, experience the abundant life of walking with the Lord is through faith in Jesus Christ. He's reminding these believers and He's reminding us that our hope is not in our good works, our hope is in Christ's finished work on the cross. You and I don't measure up, He does. You and I can't do enough good and perfect righteous things, but Jesus Christ did. So for us, we are justified, we are declared righteous on the basis of what Christ has done for us. You may be here this morning and you've never taken the step of placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. That for you today is the step that you need to take. There's no way that you can do enough good and righteous things for God to look at you and say, you're in, you are walking in relationship with me. It doesn't work that way. And Paul is reminding us here of that important truth. I want you to notice as we look at verse 17 and 18, Paul is going to follow up with this reminder. It's the second truth. We recognize our desperate need for a savior when we understand the true purpose of the law. Verse 17 is really interesting because if you just kind of read it off base, you're not really sure what Paul is trying to get at. So listen to verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? That's kind of an odd question, isn't it? You kind of have to trace through and figure out what's going on. But let me boil it down for you and help you understand that Paul is speaking to something that people often say. It says, if, if salvation is a free gift of God, that we don't have to earn it in any way. It's simply by faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved from our sins then won't that create within us just a lax attitude about sin? I mean, if it doesn't cost you anything to be forgiven of your sin, then why would you take sin seriously at all? That's the argument that some were making. Saying, listen, if 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 we pitch this out in the gospel as you can be saved from your sins and it doesn't really cost you anything, you don't have to work to earn God's favor, then people are going to sit back and go, well, since I have God's favor, I'll just keep sinning. And Paul says here, certainly not. It says in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So the accusation is, well, people are just going to continue sinning. It's not going to be that big of a deal. And Paul says, no, what what you're wanting to do is then create another wall for them to have to get over. And he says, here's the problem with that. If you start setting up this wall of here are the things that you have to do, circumcision, following the law, following the customs, whatever those things you wrap in, what Paul says is you are building a wall. In fact, he would later write that the law of God functions as a mirror to show us our sinfulness. You ever stood before a mirror and had something on your face? A little bit of ketchup on your chin? You ever notice that the mirror can't do anything about that? The mirror doesn't have arms to reach out and to wipe that away. The mirror simply shows that there is ketchup on your chin. And what Paul's saying here is that's the way the law of God functions. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law or to get rid of the law. In fact, he says he came to fulfill the law. The law of God is important to show us our sinfulness because it holds up before us the reality of this is what it means to live in perfect relationship with God. And the truth is we look at that and go, there's no way we can do that. There's no way we measure up to that standard. There's only one who is measured up to that standard, and it's Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. He is our hope for salvation. But if we're not careful, what we'll do is we will maybe trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, but think God approves of us on the basis of our works. I don't know if you're a list person or not. I'm a list person. I love to... to, to, create a box and write, create a list, do the list and be able to check the box, right? But too often for us as believers, we live in that world as if we have a list that has to be checked for God's approval to be on us. And I want you to recognize what Paul is saying here, what he is reminding us of is that there is no way for us to measure up we don't earn God's favor after we're saved by being perfect. We can't. So how do we have God's favor then? Because Christ's righteousness covers us. Now think about that for a second. We've titled this sermon series, Freedom Through Christ, and I think this may be a point for someone in here today that's struggling with their relationship with the Lord, figuring out, how, is God really approve of me? I mean, I know I've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, but what does God think about me? How does God interact with me? How does God relate with me? Certainly, we're called to live righteous lives, but I want you to recognize and understand that God's approval of you is not on the basis of you trying to live out a righteous life. It's on the basis of the fact that Christ has done that for you. That's going to become vitally important in the next verses that we look at. But here's the thing that, that may encourage you with is that gives you freedom from doubt in your life as a believer. When you recognize what Christ has done on your behalf, and that when God looks at you, He sees Christ's righteousness covering you, it frees you from the doubt of wondering whether or not you measure up in God's eyes. Listen, I have been a pastor long enough and had enough conversations with people that many people are living in doubt in their life as a believer, wondering what God thinks of them. Looking and going, man, if I have a good day and I'm seemingly walking with the Lord, God approves of me. But but man, when I have a bad day and I yell at my kids, that God looks and goes, hmm, I don't like you a whole lot. I want you to hear me this morning. That's not the way God interacts with us. God looks at us on the basis of what Christ has done for us. Think about it this way. If you're married here, how strange would it be that you would stand out at the edge of your driveway every single day holding up a poster that says, I'm married. Do you approve of me with your spouse? Your spouse comes home from work and they're like, kind of odd, like we're married. But then the next day they come home and you're out there with a the poster. And finally they sit down with you and they say, I, I, I'm not sure what, what's going on between us, but like we're married, like you know that, right? Like you're holding this sign up as if you're not sure whether or not we're married. But, but we, we are. We're, we're married. The same thing holds true for us in our relationship with the Lord. When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior in that moment, we are part of God's family. We are a son or daughter of God. So in no way in our lives does the Lord look at us and go, hmm, you didn't measure up today. You're not one of my children. No, he looks at us and he says, I love you. Now, he may discipline us because of sin in our lives, but he looks at us as his child. And Paul says here, it's not on the basis of our good works that the Lord looks at us and calls us his child. It's on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf. I want you to notice verses 19 through 21. So if that is true, if we're justified on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ, and the law shows us our sinfulness but doesn't give us a template for trying to earn God's favor, then how do we live out the Christian life? I want you to notice this third truth. We're called to live out the Christian life empowered by Christ in us, not dependent on our own strength. Notice what Paul says in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. So that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. So, how do we live out the Christian life? It is not I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live. Notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, I live by checking off all the boxes. I live by following the law. I live by keeping the customs in the Old Testament. It's not any of that. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, think about this, then Christ died For no purpose. If you could earn your salvation, why do you need Jesus? We need Jesus because we can't earn our salvation by works. In fact, it is only on the basis of what Christ has done for us. Well, what about living out the Christian life? Do we live out the Christian life earning God's favor through works? No, again. We live out the Christian life from the position of a child of God who is strengthened by Christ in us to walk in faith in our relationship with the Lord. So will there be works in our life? Of course, but it won't be so that we can earn God's favor. It will be sitting from the position of having already earned God's favor and living out what Christ has done in us. I want to ask you, if you would, to bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning and as we transition to this time of invitation and then as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together today, I want to remind you of what Christ has done on your behalf. He lived a sinless, perfect life, took your sin and my sin upon himself, paid for those sins, died on the cross, was buried, and rose again on the third day, securing salvation for us through him. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never taken the step of trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior maybe you've had the mindset that you've got to clean yourself up beforehand, that you got to do some type of work, some type of good thing before God will accept you. And I want to put an end to that this morning, put an end to that striving, to that uncertainty, that today, simply by faith in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins brought into the family of God, experience the abundant life of walking in relationship with your creator and experience the promise of life eternal with him. Maybe that's the step that you need to take today. If it is, we would love nothing more than to help you take that step. We'd love to talk with you after the service today or Maybe you want to fill out a connection card and check the box to speak with a pastor or that you want to take the step of trusting Jesus Christ for salvation. We'd love to follow up with you on that. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, I want you to rest in what Christ has done for you. As we celebrate in just a moment his death on the cross, his blood shed for us, rest in that today. You don't have to earn God's favor You have it on the basis of what Christ has done for you. Rest in that. Father, we ask this morning that you would work in our hearts and our lives today. That you would remind us of the beauty of the message of the gospel. That you would remind us of what Christ has done on our behalf. Of what we experience as a result of what He's done. For the unbeliever who's here that's never taken that step, would you give them the courage today to take that step of trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior? Father, for the believer who's here today, would you encourage them to rest in the truth of what Christ has done on their behalf? And would you also help them see? You've called us to live out the Christian life not to earn your favor, but from the position of already having your favor as your child. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand if you would. We'll sing briefly and then we'll sit back down and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Maybe you need to spend some time in prayer during. This invitation. Maybe you need to pray with one of our pastors. We'd love to do that. You respond as the Lord leads.